Even the Dead Tell Stories, Marcus Sedgwick, Revolver. Violent Vice contains graphic and or explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone and welcome to Violent Vice's bonus episode. Ooh. Yay, bonus! We did fifty. We're on a roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do have to apologize and say sorry for last week's audio. I had some technical difficulties, or I mean this week's audio. Um, so I sound a little different, but the stories are all still there. So hopefully you still enjoyed it. But yeah. it's all fixed now. So, John, John, are you ready to be spooked with Fireside Tales? Um, I mean, no matter what I say, you're going to read them, so I might as well say yes. Yeah. So, I recommend everyone that can drink, grab a drink, and gather around and listen close. Oh, no. So... Starting off with story number one. A family, much like any other, was on a road trip to Arizona. The thing of it was, is they were on a highway, kind of in the middle of nowhere, with no towns nearby, just an open, empty road. As they were traveling, the car, of course, ran out of gas. And the dad told the family that he was going to see if there was a town down the road a bit. As it was nighttime, and they would just be fine waiting in the car as their dad had gotten gas and would come back. When the dad left, he said, whatever you do, don't open the car doors for anyone, and that he would be right back. Some time went by, and it was already dark. They saw no cars coming, and no cars had passed for a long time. So the mom began to get worried. The kids were worried, too, as it was dark, and they were sitting in a dark vehicle. Suddenly, the mom sees a man walking towards the car. He is carrying a bag and slowly approaches the vehicle. As he is approaching the car, the mother is checking all the car doors to make sure they are locked. The man begins to knock on the passenger side window and motioning for the mother to roll down the window. She shakes her head no, and then he starts pounding on the windows. The kids start to freak out and cry and she yells out to the man that she has a gun. The man then walks over to the front of the car and places the bag on the hood. He turns and smiles as he walks off. Hours now pass, and still no word from the father. And as the morning is starting to break, she is able to see down the road, and no more mysterious man is there. So she nervously gets out of the car and goes to see what's inside the bag. When she opens it, it's her husband's head. Ooh. Gross. What? And he's just... So, like, a guy just... Uh, runs hu- out of gas. Husband goes to do it. Guy shows up and is just like, I got something for you. 
And she's like, go away, I have a guy. And he's just like, no, really, I got something for you. All right, fine. And I'll put it on here. And then he just Perfect. walks away. Hmm. I mean, good thing she didn't open the door. Yeah. I mean... Okay, so, supernatural side. This figure was someone real creepy and... He essentially knew that this man who was beheaded belonged to whoever was in this car and did all that stuff. I think creepier still if it is if it was like not supernatural and like this dude was just following this family, knew it was them, killed the husband, chopped off the head and tried to give it to the rest of the family. I feel like that's much creepier. Yeah, I think it I think it's the latter with this man who just saw the husband walk away from the vehicle, killed the husband and wanted to kill the family too. So he wanted to freak them out as much as possible and then just brought the husband's head to the car. I'm still trying to process why. Cuz it's a scary like so- story. <laughs> yeah, but like I don't know. I might be getting judgy about the story. It's just like, what do you do if you run out of gas in the middle of the night? You hunker down and stay in your car. You can't do that in Wisconsin, especially in the winter. You'll freeze to death and die. Well, yeah, that's why the dad went out to go get gas. He just didn't return. Yeah, but... uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. Go on to another one. All right. So the next one. A hiker was making his way through the dense woods of a moonlit forest as he'd done many times before. This loosely packed dirt of a trail, not yet blazed, gave way under his boots as he ventured late into the night. It was far past midnight by this point, and the hiker desperately needed to sleep. The man knelt down and shrugged off his backpack, preparing to set up his tent until he took note of light somewhere afar in the distance. With curiosity piped, he donned his backpack once more to discover the source of the light. As he approached the offending bulb, he gave notice that it wasn't a light by itself, but an entire cottage, lit up somewhat dimly in the dead of the night. Manners be damned, the hiker decided that he'd ask the owner of the cottage for some lodging for the night. After all, his tent could be awfully uncomfortable from time to time. However, after several minutes of bare knuckles rapping against the solid oak door, not a soul answered his call. He continued to knock, 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 hoping that someone was home to shelter him. After a few more bouts of this, the man pursed his lips, quickly making a decision of ethics to sleep outside or intrude without invitation. What they don't know won't hurt him, the man decided, testing the lock to see if breaking and entering was in order. To his surprise, the door gave way instantly, the hinges eerily creaking as he made himself at home in the cottage. The cottage was simple enough. There was a small kitchen that was attached to a living room, which held nothing but a pull-out couch. It was fairly standard, nothing fancy, but it was better than a tent. The only thing the hiker wasn't comfortable with was an odd sort of collection that the occupant of this cottage had. 
some sort of painting collection of disfigured faces with malicious expressions that lined the walls of the room. Each canvas seemed to glare at the man with personal hatred and malice that he'd never experienced before. After a few moments of curious staring and cold shivers, the man turned away from the art and tucked himself into the pull-out couch for a night's rest. After a few hours of abysmal sleep, the hiker rose with an uncomfortable feeling. He felt uneasy and stood to his feet to gather his belongings before setting off again as quickly as possible. As he packed his bedroll back into his pack, he stared again at the wall once more to gaze upon the odd paintings he had seen the night before. His heart stopped cold as he realized there were only windows. Creepy, right? Yeah. Just like, oh, what? Ugh. Yeah, I don't think I would be able to sleep around paintings or windows for a while after that. That would be bad. I wonder if he turned into a painting, though, because he only saw windows. Like, if he was trapped, or... I think it was, like, implying that the windows were windows all along, and there was something out in those windows staring at him all night. Oh, yeah. That would be creepy. I think that's what it's saying. Could be wrong. Either way, that's... Yeah, that's pretty creepy. Yeesh. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, I forgot to say, the first story was by the Fourth Degree Knight, and the second story was by Vertigo21125 from Reddit. This next story is by MP Real Invictive from Creepypasta. Mm, Creepypasta. Oh, boy. Yeah. I will always remember the ragman, not necessarily for the rags of the clothes he wore, his a thousand-yard stare, or his way of talking like he was the only one listening, but for the story he told me. You see, stories have become our method of introducing ourselves. The other questions we would normally ask have been rendered useless. There is little point in asking what your job is when you have no job. There is no point in asking what their favorite TV show is when there is no longer any real function of an electrical system. There is no point in asking about their family. You get the point. I have no real method of telling time anymore, but if I had to hazard a guess, I would assume at least two years have passed since it all started. It feels longer than two years since those undead things came along and began to nod down on the population to nothing but bones. When they came, the modern world was lost. Generators fell into despair, and we were plunged back into what felt like colonial times. I was a huge fan of movies, you see, which unfortunately were one of the many casualties of the undead. I have since picked up a new hobby— you could call me a collector of sorts. I gather stories. I collect all sorts of stories, but the ones that intrigue me the most are people's experiences from the zombie apocalypse. These stories are the most appealing to me because everyone has their own unique experience. 
They usually pertain to what they were doing the day the initial outbreak started. Some are sad. Some are funny. Like this one about a girl who decided to try DMT for the first time in her life and thought the zombies were a hallucination brought on by a bad drug trip for a week straight before realizing that that was way too long to be hallucinating. But only one has really resonated with me these past two years. I met the ragman in a burnt-out building. I had been moving from place to place, looking for somewhere to stay. The lure of the fire he had built was too great. I ventured into the deteriorating building, ignoring my fear that I could be walking into an ambush. I just wanted a place to stay for the night, where I wouldn't drift off to sleep in fear that I would be woken up by one of those things gnawing on me. I found the ragman crouched in front of the fire. He barely acknowledged my presence. Where most would draw their weapon and demand that I identify myself, he merely craned his head up to take a quick look at me before dropping it back down to the crackling fire. I took this as an invitation and sat down near the warmth. It had been the first time in weeks that I was able to warm up my body from the cold night's air. The crackling and roaring fire brought back memories of spooky campfire tales and roasting s'mores. I called him the Ragman because he gave me no formal introduction. He was a haggard-looking man in about his 50s. His beard looked like a razor hadn't touched it since the undead started walking around. He was emaciated. In a world where everyone is practically a walking skeleton, saying he was gaunt is no understatement or a literal flourish. His clothes had been reduced to rags by months of strenuous activity. It looked like he had bundled up with two or three layers of clothing, but all had been worn down to strips and rags. We regarded each other in silence for a few moments before he began talking without introduction or a statement of intention. He began. The first few days of the outbreak outbreak we took shelter in a building it was that office building where we camped out for those first few days we ate the food we found in the break room a lot of people talked about what was happening the general consensus was that the military was on the way they had to be i mean this was america we we were talking about we expected the military resurgence to be quick and effective We thought this hellish plague as being something that would be solved in a matter of days. I had my first real encounter with an infected the night we first went into that office building. One of my groups suggested we search in the area to make sure we were truly safe in this barricaded building. Most of the employees had fled. It seemed like no one wanted to spend the apocalypse in their old place of work. There was no one except for one lone worker who had decided to go down with the ship. He was dressed in a white button-down shirt that was stained red. Of course, I was the one who found him and had to take care of him. He slowly turned towards me. His mouth was stained red. He had recently began to rot. I grabbed the closest weapon I could find, which was a red stapler. I stepped towards him and swung down with all my might. The first blow knocked him right on his ass. I thought I had killed him, but when he started getting up, I quickly realized how res- resilient these things were. I struck him again, again, again. At this point, the ragman became quiet 
animated and pantomimed his vicious attack, as if he was lost in a trance. He reenacted the attack and brought his right hand down on an invisible target. The ragman continued as he emphasized his story with his actions. I must have beat its head in with that red stapler 20 or 30 times before he even stopped moving. I took one last look at the body, a bony mess that was once its face, and I threw up in a nearby trash can. I then dragged the body over to the window and shoved it out. I didn't watch the impact on the street below. I went back to the others and didn't breathe a word about what I had done. I wasn't sure why I never told them. I think in the end it was as a few parts of guilt and a few other parts not wanting to scare them. I had just killed what was once a man quite brutally. I had beat him to death with the stapler in my hand until its face split open and his brain started leaking out. The other part was fear. I didn't want to scare them by letting them know that there were those things here in the building and that they were practically impossible to kill. Looking back on it, I wish I told them. We sat huddled in that building for days. I mentioned maybe leaving to find another place or scavenge for food, but my thoughts were quickly shot down. They were convinced that the army was coming to rescue, and they were only days away. They didn't want to risk going out into this new and dangerous world. They just wanted to hunker down and wait. We woke up the next day to the sound of a helicopter flying overhead. It took me a few seconds to make the connections. The others knew there were implications right away and shot to their feet and began tearing away from the makeshift barricade we had set up to keep those flesh-eating fiends out. They flew out into the streets, waving their hands and trying to catch the helicopter's attention. They made so much sound. They thought the helicopter was military coming in to save the day. It didn't. I saw it as the last dying gasp of the entire system collapsing under the onslaught of the dead. That helicopter wasn't here to begin evacuation of civilians. If anything, it was fleeing from the base as the undead creatures swarmed over it and gnawed everything to its bones. I stood in the doorway and watched them shout and wave. It was in that moment I realized the difference between me and them. It was hope and fear. They had hope and thought the military was about to come riding in on their white horse and save the day. I had fear. I had faced one of those undead things. I knew how resilient and practically impervious to damage they were. I knew that no one was coming to save us, and the only option we had left was to save ourselves. It was my fear that saved me. They just made so much noise. The ragman paused like there was something he really wanted to say, but couldn't find the words. His eyes were red and wet with tears. I wasn't sure if it was the smoke or his memories that made him look that way. He continued. The sounds drew so many of them. In the space of a few seconds, it was too late and they were on them, scratching, biting, tearing away their flesh. They tried to wade their way through the undead horde to get back to the building, but it was too late. And I did the only thing I could. His voice cracked and he took a few seconds before he was able to finish that thought. It came out sounding rhythmic like the tolling of a death knell. I shut the door. I knew there was, a, there was nothing more I could do. There were so many of those undead bastards, and I was so terrified. 
I kept telling myself that it was too late for them. I told myself I couldn't make it through all of this. I just shut up and ignored them. I could survive if I abandoned them. They realized what I was doing, and their begging turned into curses. They they called me the worst names imaginable. His entire body sagged like he was a balloon that someone had stuck with a pen. He deflated and managed to squeeze the last words out. They called me terrible names. They called me friend, husband, father. They, they... He completely sank into himself and dissolved into tears. He sobbed and wept incoherently. He said nothing more for the rest of the night, and I said nothing to him. There is nothing I could say for him, nothing I wanted to say to him. We both went to sleep on separate sides of the fire, and despite the warmth, I felt a chill through my body. I'm not sure why the ragman told me that story. Did he want someone to confess to? Did he want to be punished for abandoning his family? I'll never know the answer to that question, because when I woke up the next morning, the haggard, ragged man was gone. Only the smoldering fire was left behind as proof that he had, in fact, existed. To be perfectly honest, I'm not even sure if he was even alive to begin with. I mean, how could a man survive after something like that, after losing, no, abandoning his family? Was he just another victim of the zombies? Was he just another one of the walking dead? So, kind of a sad story. Not kind of, like really sad. Yeah. That was really sad. It was, but I thought there were just random people until, you know, the end of the story. Yeah, it's like they held up in an office building. You assume it's just other people and not family. Jesus. Yeah, but, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, like, The Walking Dead. Like, there are some stories like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he was exactly, like... I don't know. It's it's really hard to justify what he did, but it's also like he had no other choice if he was going to survive. Yeah, I mean, if they were already infected and everything. Yeah, like it's honor versus survival. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah, but it's something to think about. For sure. Uh, this next one is by an anonymous user. On the way to go camping in the White Mountains, a family witnessed a bad accident on the Kenna campus. When the police arrived, they rerouted the family's car. This is the first time the family will stay at this particular campsite. So they find they must drive over the mountain to finally get to their campsite from the opposite direction of the same highway they were first on. When they finally got to settle in the dark, they checked the local news online. They learned that there was one fatality in the accident they witnessed earlier on that day. They are now sitting by a fire and finishing up their dinner when a woman comes by. They were in the middle of nowhere, but they thought nothing of it since their campsite was one of several, and when they arrived, they did not have time to see how busy the other campsites were. The black-haired young woman asked the family for directions. 
She seemed disorientated and confused. She had no jacket, and her hair was very untidy. The family is not familiar with the area, so they directed the women to the main cabin of the campground. But they then realized the office was probably closed. The woman wanders off before they could offer any further assistance. The next morning, they all have but forgotten about the car accident and the police rerouting them and the lost woman. They all pile into the car and are ready to make a day of it. They plan to drive to the nearest trail and hike for a few hours. When they hit the main road, however, it quickly becomes clear to the parents that the accident they witnessed happened right outside the gates of their campgrounds. In fact, on the main road, the skid marks were clear as day, and some burnt pieces of wreck still lay in the side of the road, all this less than a hundred yards from their fire pit. They stayed at the campsite all week. They never saw that woman again. However, when they finally went to town for supplies, they grabbed the local paper. The front page featured the story of the New York State woman who died on the highway earlier that week. The story continued on the inside of the paper with pictures of the wreck and the photo of the young woman. She was young. She had black hair and she looked exactly like the woman who had walked up to the campsite earlier on that week, their first night on the campsite. Okay. So the dead woman came and asked for directions. Or the ghost yeah. of the woman. Yeah. I liked the story behind that one. It wasn't quite quite well written, but um, the story itself was pretty cool. Yeah. I, like, I want to say that I've heard some like haunted things or areas and stuff like that that were like essentially this story. Yeah. And I think you even mentioned on last week's episode that, uh, like, there's the lady in blue or something that would kind of do this. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, the blue light lady, I like the lady in blue better. Um, Oh, yeah. She just, she died of a cholera outbreak at the camp and would just, like, walk Mm -hmm. around and... Sometimes yeah. they people thought they hit her or whatnot, and they didn't, um, but she would disappear and everything. Yeah, and it's just like, interact with something later to find out that it's dead. Yeah. It's been dead this whole time. But um, the Lady in White stories are, are exactly like this, where people think they hit them with cars, or are, they mm. find a disorientated lady wandering the road in white, and yeah. it's this story. I would say that white is probably the most common garb for these kinds of stories. Yeah. Creepy stuff, though. Yeah, creepy stuff. What would you do if you saw that or interacted with it in this way? I don't know. As long as, like, it was a safe situation for a woman, I would try to help the lady, but I don't know if it's a guy, kind of leave him on its own because, you know, guys are creepy and can be murdery. Well, most ladies are not, but I guess that's kind of... That's sexist in your note. A little bit, but um, also kind of statistically true. I was going to say not statistically unfounded, but sexist. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. Judging you slightly. I'm not. not really. 
I I don't I don't think I would do anything too different than that either. As a fellow woman, I I, I would not do anything different. All right. Well, okay. Here's here's a hypothetical. Yeah. It's a male, but thirteen. If it's a child, I would help the child. But All that's right, well, not okay. Where where is the cutoff then? What if I said fifty? Uh, that's kind of virgin adult, but again, if I can tell if it's a child, like, you know, I would, I would still help. Like, 17, 16, 17, and 18, like, a, a boy looks like an adult, so, like, that's probably the cutoff. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. And, like, I'm just saying, most high schoolers are taller than me, so, like... True. Yeah. It, it's just, like, a sense of safety, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I get you. Yeah. Still, creepy story. Creepy story. Anyways, let's go on to the next one, which is called The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert W. Service. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights. But the queerest they ever did see was the night on the marge of Lake Labarge I cremated Sam McGee. Now, Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in south to roam, round the pole, God only knows. He was I'm starting to sense that this is a rhyme. It is. Now, shush. <laughs> <laughs> He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say, in his homely way, that he'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. Talk of your cold through the parka's fold, it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we closed, then lashes froze till sometimes we couldn't see. It wasn't much fun, but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee. At the very night, as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow, and the dogs were fed and the stars overheard were dancing heel to toe, he turned to me and cap, says he, I'll cash in this trip, I guess. And if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low, I couldn't say no, and then he says with some sort of moan, it's the cursed cold, and it's right hold till I'm chilled and clean through to the bone. Yet taint be dead, it's my awful dread of icy grave the pains. So I want you to swear that, follow the air, you'll cremate my last remains. A pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on a streck of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. He crouched on the sleigh and raved all day of his home in Tennessee, and before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and I hurried horror-driven, with a corpse half-hid that I couldn't get rid because of the promise given. It was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, you're taxed brawn and brains, but you promised true, and it's up to you to create cremate those last remains now a promise made is a debt unpaid and the trail has its own stern code 
and the days to come through my lips were dumb, and in my heart I cursed that load. And the long, long night, by the lone firelight, while the huskies round and ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quite clay seemed heavier and heavier grow. And on I went through the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low. To the trail was bad and I felt half mad, but I swore I would not give in. And I'd often sing to the hateful thing and its hearkened grinned. Till I come to the marge of Lake Labarge and direct light there lay. It was jammed in ice, but I saw in a trice that he called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit. I looked at my frozen chum. Then here I said with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying around, and I heaped the fuel higher. The flames just soared, and the furnace roared. Such a blaze you seldom see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal, and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled, and the huskies howled, and the wind began to blow. It was a icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks, and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke and the inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear. But the stars came out, and they danced about eerily again I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peep inside. I guess he's cooked, and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile, you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly feel fear you'll let in the cold and storm. Since I left the plum tree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake Labarge, I cremated Sam McGee. So, I do have to say, Corinne loves poems, and she's getting her doctorate in poetry, and mm-hmm. so this long... Uh, tale of create the creation of Sam McGee kind of hits home and I I think it's a cool cool tale like how Sam died and then cremated and his ghost was like no close the door because you know it's warm in here yeah okay because I was thinking like his body was still like reformed and there and, like, it wasn't just a ghost or anything like that. I was a bit confused. So if it was a ghost, that I don't know why, but that makes it less creepy. Well, I mean, I assume it's a ghost. Like, the body could have still been in there, and it, he could have been, like, frozen to death. And then the body was, like, reanimated and said, hey, close the door because, you know, it's cold out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I assume he died because he de- was frozen to death and was drugged along the sleigh for days. So... Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I don't know. The rhyming kind of, like, took some of the edge off the story, if that makes sense. 
Gotcha. I thought it made it spookier because, like, it was like a sing-song tale. Okay. I, like, I can, like, if it was said by, like, a four-year-old, I feel like that would, like, get crazy creepy. Yeah, I just can't do a four-year-old voice. (laughs) No, but, like, it has, like... I don't know. There's potential to, like, use that in, like, the next Omens movie or something like that, if they ever make another one. Yeah. Kind of speaking about, like, rhymes and everything, have you seen that lady that sings in the stairs to scare her neighbors on TikTok? I believe the song she sings is Hide and Seek, but it's, like, really creepy and eerie. eerie. Um, I don't know. She, if it's you've not seen just that. that song either. She's done a few others too, but it's like a really like one of those industrial building staircases where it's super echoey. Yeah, and, and yeah, like I think that one that you're talking about has like that audio has been used in so many different ways. Yeah, too. it's it's like the ding dong. Yeah. Yeah. I know which one you're talking about. And yeah, that the vocal range needed to do that is is quite excessive. So that is all we will sing about it. All right, I get the hint. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, like, it goes really high, really fast. Yeah. No, she's really talented. I think she's going to have her baby soon, though, too. I had no idea about that part. Yeah. Um, but TikTok, man, they have definitely interesting videos there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this next story, um, I might include this in next week's episode. And, um, it kind of takes us back home, but I am just reading the creepypasta part of it. Mm -hmm. Can you guess what the topic is? We're doing spooky stories. Yep. Back home, Wisconsin. There's also a crime case and a movie about it. I don't watch horror movies, Audie. Guess. I don't know. Uh, Dahmer. No. So... No idea. It's a creepypasta story. So I will be covering Slender Man. Oh. You said, I forgot about the creepypasta part. That was going to narrow it down a bit for me. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I will be covering the creepypasta of Slender Man. And again, I might read this next week as well. Um, But I definitely want to cover Slender Man, the criminal case behind it, um, as well as the movie and a bit about the author of it, too. Mm. That does sound pretty interesting to me. so. So this might be just an intro to Slenderman. Ooh. A inter-episode segue. Yeah. And it might be a multi-parter, so we shall see. Multi-parter. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's getting intense. There's a lot on it. So here is the creepypasta Slenderman. After waking up with a jolt, the girl laid in bed a few seconds longer. Reaching over to switch on her bedside lamp, she tried to remember exactly what had stolen her sweet slumber away. 
When she couldn't, the brunette swung her legs over the side of the bed and heaved herself up. Checking the time on her phone, she, sh she snorted when she saw it was midnight, the witching hour. Knowing that sleep would only evade her, she left her bedroom for the kitchen. A good cup of coffee on her mind. As she passed by the front door, a chill spread like liquid fire down her spine. It's only winter, she told herself, focusing again on her plan to make coffee. Measuring out two scoops water and preparing her cup kept her occupied. But as the dark liquid boiled, she had nothing left to keep her mind from wandering off. The chill returned, and she couldn't help but glance behind her to the front door. Something was amiss. It stood there innocently enough, the door, just like always. The deadbolt was still in place, and she could see nothing amiss with it. Turning back to her coffee, she did her best to forget about the feeling. With her cup in hand, she started back towards her bedroom. As she walked by the front door, however, she decided that a quick glance out the peephole would only help calm her restless mind. The chill worsened with each step she took towards the door and farther away from the safety of the warmth of her blankets in her bedroom. She pressed her empty hand against the cold metal door and took a deep breath before leaning her eye to the peephole. At first, she could only see an inky blackness, and somehow the blackness seemed to swirl in on itself. When she blinked in surprise, the void melted away. She wished it hadn't. In its place, there stood what she could only guess was once a man. The limbs were long and inhumanly awkward, with bulky joints branching often to several arms not unlike the branches of a tree. The creature was draped in a black suit, somehow making the thing more nightmarish to her. The icing on the proverbial cake, however, was, was what passed for that thing's hellish face. It was as though her mind blurred that ghastly visage to spare itself further shock and horror. She shoved herself away from the door with hand still pressed against it. The scalding mug of coffee fell, the liquid burning her bare legs as she fell backwards and tried to crawl away from that door. She knew, somehow knew, that her mind hadn't been playing tricks on her. As she crawled away from that door, she watched as the tendrils of black as the void she first saw snake around through the cracks of the door. The girl was trapped between the instinct to flee and the gut feeling not to turn her back on the door. When the door jolted, the urge to flee overcame her and she slipped on the burning liquid as she tried to make her way back to her room. She knew deep down that she was trapping herself in a corner, but she had to get away from that door and that thing. The girl was halfway down the hallway when she heard the previously locked door creak open. She screamed and slipped into the wall, cracking her chin on it and stunning her. After that, there was only blackness. The next morning, Nicole, a warm male voice, snapped the woman out of her trance. As she turned around, she was met by one of her sister's doctors. She nodded, not sure if she should say anything or even if she could find her voice if she did have anything to say. That morning, she had gotten an urgent phone call from the hospital saying that her sister, Lindsay, was there. Before they even let her see her, the doctors had pulled her off to the side and insisted that they talk to her about what might have happened to Lindsay. Phrases like self-inflicted and assault had been thrown around, and Nicole felt her mind reel. She still hadn't fully understood what they had been saying until she saw Lindsay with her own eyes. 
Her little sister had a bandage wrapped around her head, covering both of her ears as well as her eyes. They said it was to keep her now deadened eyes from drying out and to keep infection out of the wounds Lindsay had made to her ears. The doctors had guessed that either she or someone else had jammed a pencil into them to keep her off balance or to deafen herself against something. There's the mix of first and second degree burns on her hands, legs, and feet from what was assumed to be the coffee her neighbors found all over the entry to her apartment. As Nicole walked into her sister's hospital room for that first time, she thought she had spied the silhouette of a man in a window. That, she knew, however, was impossible. Her sister's room was on the third story of the hospital. Credit Anonymous. Okay, so, I mean... Uh... So that thing was so scary or so horrible that she deafened herself and blinded herself, or that thing did that to her. I want to say, I don't know, which one do you think it was? I th- I think it's creepier if that thing did it to her. Yeah, I mean, like, she did, like, say, like, the, okay, the story does go where, like, she'll hit her chin. Mm-hmm. And then everything goes black until she's back at the hospital. Yeah. So, I mean, she could have gotten possessed and then done that to herself, I guess. Maybe, but I I do think it's more likely that her panicking, getting knocked out, and then neighbors find her where she got knocked out, assumably, and stuff like that. I, I'm assuming so, which is why my thirst, first thought was that the thing did it to her. Yeah. And then, of course, seeing that silhouette on the third, the third floor, floor is super creepy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the sister's the next target. Yep. Ooh. It's kind of like the ring where they watch the video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like, okay... I don't know if I'm, I'm getting this wrong, but if I think there's like one of those things that is like the ring where if somebody who saw Slender Man or talks about him after seeing him or I don't know, like it is like passable onto somebody else. I think so, and we'll get into that next week. Yeah, I want to say it is, so we'll find out. Yeah, but a good intro to next week's episode, don't you think? Oh, for sure. This is essentially a story that started something really big. Yeah, so in the meantime... It, like, exploded over the internet. It did. It did, especially, like, I think it was, like, my junior, senior year when that crime happened, like, 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'm going to watch the movie, and I'll kind of report back on all this stuff for next week. Oh, boy. Okay. So, 
Guys, thank you for listening to Fireside Tales, Vile and Vice's bonus episode. I hope you guys curled up with a cup and were spooked. Um, I appreciate you guys listening for the bonus episode. And again, we do have our merch up now at uh, vileandvice.bigcartel.com. That's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E. There's uh, t-shirts and tank tops for like $25 plus shipping and then sweatshirts for $40 and stickers for $5. So uh, check it out and let us know if you want any other type of merch too. We can make that happen. Oh boy. More merch. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next week. All right. It's going to be creepy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Violent Vice Podcast. Cover art is by Colton Griffith. Music by Annabelle Rayback. And research done by Corinne Drybeldis. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Violent Vice Podcast or on Twitter at Violent Vice. That's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E. No anchor scenes here. If you want to help support the show, please do so on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Vice. Or give us a once-off donation on PayPal with our email, violinvice at gmail.com. Again, that's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E. To keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.